0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. On today's show, we hear about the recently unveiled Medical Education Center at LSU Health Shreveport. Plus, the Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker tells us about an ongoing case to determine the fate of state air permits for a proposed plastics complex in St. James Parish. But first, early next year, Louisiana will inaugurate an all-Republican slate of statewide officials. As politics reporter Molly Ryan reports, it marks a significant shift from almost 20 years ago when a Republican from the state had never won a U.S. Senate seat.
1: In 1991, just one Republican held a statewide office in Louisiana, and it wasn't until more than a decade later that a Republican won a U.S. Senate race in the state. At least that was the first time a Republican had won since Reconstruction, when the political parties were really not the parties they are today. Since then, more than 30 Louisiana lawmakers and politicians have switched from the Democratic Party to the Republican Party. Democratic Party registration has dropped by about 20 percent in the last two decades. And even more registered Democrats likely vote Republican because of the state's open primary system. Someone who's looked a lot at this trend is Albert Samuels. I met him at a busy cafe.
2: We've gone through a transformation.
1: He's the head of the political science department at Southern University in Baton Rouge and formerly taught a class on Louisiana politics. He says several factors played a role in Louisiana's political switch, including a move away from the populist politics that were popular in the 1900s under Democratic governors like Huey Long and Edwin Edwards.
2: Republicans started to gradually make gains in part because 1980s and the collapse of the oil and gas economy really undermined the total populist view of government. On top of that, you had the corruption scandals with with, with, with Edward Edwards. Edwards
1: was found guilty on several counts of fraud, conspiracy and money laundering.
2: So it kind of fed this anti-government rhetoric.
1: Samuels also says that term limits in Louisiana came at the expense of Democrats because a lot of longtime Democratic lawmakers could no longer run for office.
2: When they moved away, Republicans began to win those seats. And, 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 once, and, and, and then once, once the momentum built, you know, you, you started seeing Democrats changing parties.
1: Another key moment, he says, was Hurricane Katrina.
2: Not only did it happen on uh, a Democratic governor, like uh, Captain Blanco, who was blamed, but also it led to the displacement of thousands of uh, Louisiana, particularly, a lot even New Orleans. A lot of those were, were, were reliable Democratic voters
1: but not every Democrat left or switched parties. Former state lawmaker and Congressman Charlie Melanson got into politics in the 70s as a Democrat and is still one today.
3: I'm a conservative Democrat, and I use that that term because it's what I've been tagged as. I'm really a blue dog Democrat, which means I'm conservative on fiscal issues, but more moderate and maybe a slight lean to the left on social issues.
1: Melanson says others pressured him to become a Republican, including then-U.S. Senator David Vitter, a prominent figure in the party.
3: David Vitter called me one day and said, "Um, look, if you don't switch over to Republican, we're going to run somebody against you for your reelect.
1: But when everyone around him was switching parties, Melanson wouldn't budge.
3: I I found that the Republican Party, particularly in the national level, didn't sync at all with my politics my personality, my concern for my fellow man.
1: He mostly agrees with Samuel's explanation for the political shift in Louisiana, and he pointed to another factor, race.
3: I, I guess the best thing that I can tell you that turned that light switch on for me was when uh, white friends started telling me I needed to become a Republican because I was in the party of the ends, the n word.
1: Louisiana's racial history, he says, makes it especially difficult for someone like Sean Wilson, a black Democrat who recently lost his bid for governor, to win statewide office in Louisiana. Samuels agrees that race plays a real role in Louisiana elections and politics, and he says that all of these factors mean it's back to the drawing board for Louisiana Democrats.
2: I think the Democratic Party almost has to start
1: over. He says Democrats are not the default party they once were. That's Republicans. And a complete reversal from 30 years ago, Governor John Bell Edwards is the only Democrat in statewide office, and he's on his way out, making way for Republicans to have total control of state government. In Baton Rouge, I'm Molly Ryan. Five Louisiana judges heard arguments
0: in a case to decide the fate of state air permits for a $9.4 billion plastics complex proposed in St. James Parish. The Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality and Formosa Plastics, the company behind the plant, hope to overturn a district court ruling that vacated the company's air permits last year after siding with environmental advocates. The Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker has been reporting on this case and joins us now. Hallie, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me. So this lawsuit, it's been going on for a while Tell me a bit about why the State Department of Environmental Quality, or LDEQ, is being sued.
4: Yeah, so you're right. This has been going on since 2020. So that's three years now. And that's ever since the state approved more than a dozen air permits for what could become the world's largest plastics complex. But Formosa proposed putting this complex in St. James Parish, in this majority Black district that already has like quite a few large industrial facilities. So when that happened, seven environmental groups, mostly based in Louisiana, who have long opposed this project, and one St. James resident, Beverly Alexander, sued the state, asking the courts to overturn the permits. Then Formosa, of course, joined in the suit because it's their project that's on the line.
0: Okay, so what exactly did these environmental groups accuse the state of doing?
4: Yeah, so it's a lot of things. But at its core, these groups accuse the state of three things, violating the Clean Air Act, which is the big federal law that controls air pollution, violating its duty as a public trustee, and also violating a state law that requires them to examine how their actions will affect parish master plans. So basically, the states laid out this extensive argument that the state did not do its due diligence when permitting the plastics complex when it has been legally entrusted, you know, with this duty to protect the environment or the public's benefit.
0: Didn't do its due diligence. Did they give examples?
4: Yeah. So they argued that the state's decision to grant Formosas permits could lead to enough air pollution to surpass federal air quality standards, which would be a violation of the Clean Air Act. I mean, this sprawling complex is proposed to be built across 2,400 acres and release more than 800 tons of toxic air pollutants if allowed to move forward. And that includes several cancer-causing chemicals that the Biden administration is really cracking down on right now, like ethylene oxide. The groups also argued the state failed to consider the existing air pollution in the area where the project is planned or complete a legally required analysis of whether the new air pollution would disproportionately affect one demographic over another. Bottom line, they called LDEQ's decision arbitrary without enough evidence to back up the permit approval. They argue that the evidence should have led to a denial of the permit.
0: And a Louisiana district court judge agreed, right? Last fall, the district court judge ruled in favor of the environmental groups and vacated all 15 permits.
4: Exactly. So Judge Trudy White wrote this scathing decision that sided with all of the group's arguments. She found that the state had violated the Clean Air Act, agreeing that many aspects of LDQ's decision-making was arbitrary and capricious, as she said. And she also found that the state had violated public trust because it failed to support claims that neighborhoods near the project wouldn't be exposed to unsafe levels of pollution.
0: We are speaking with the Coastal Desk's Hallie Parker about a case to decide the fate of state air permits for a proposed plastics complex in St. James Parish. So the Louisiana Department of Environmental Quality and Formosa have appealed this ruling, right?
4: Yes, they appealed to Louisiana's First Circuit Court of Appeals, and now, more than a year later, the court actually heard their oral arguments. Twice, actually. Twice? Yeah, so a three-judge panel heard about an hour's worth of oral arguments from both sides in early November, and then a week later, the court actually ordered that ar- that the arguments be heard again in front of a five-judge panel, and that hearing happened last week.
0: Is that unusual for a case like this to be heard twice?
4: Well, it certainly doesn't happen every time, but it does potentially offer a glimpse into how the court was initially leading. So under the state appeals court rules, cases are reargued in front of a panel of at least five judges when one of the initial judges dissents to modifying or reversing the trial court ruling. So where does the state say that the trial court went wrong? Well, as you can imagine, the state and Formosa have a long list of reasons for why the district court judge was wrong. Basically, they're arguing the trial court erred in all of its decisions, and they describe the district court judge as having essentially accepted the environmental group's arguments verbatim. In their brief, they say the district court's reasons had little objective reasoning. They also say the state went through proper steps for permitting and that they properly assessed any potential health risks and found none. And also weighed the environmental cost of the project with the economic gain and other factors, just like they're supposed to before they made the decision.
0: Well, when can we expect a decision on this ruling?
4: You know, that's a tricky question. Um, One legal expert that I spoke with said it's hard to tell, but will likely be sometime early in the new year. Nothing's for certain, though. It could come within a couple weeks or take several months.
0: Hallie Parker is a reporter for our Coastal Desk. Thanks for being here.
4: Thanks for having me, Alana.
0: From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you're listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. LSU Health Shreveport recently unveiled a new Center for Medical Education. The $79 million facility is three years in the making and includes teaching spaces, an auditorium and a wellness center, among other features. Here to tell us more about this medical education center and what he hopes it can accomplish is the Dean of the School of Medicine, Dr. David Lewis. Thanks for being here.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So can you start by telling us about the idea to build this center? When did this vision all begin and how long have you and your team been working to bring this to life?
5: So uh, there, there were initial plans, uh, like I said, of, about 10 years ago and they kind of got mothballed um, and uh, it resurfaced, um, I would say, probably about five years ago now then. And, um, and so we started getting support both from um, the state, uh, our legislature, uh, as well as the governor's office. But I think more importantly, uh, from the community as a whole. Um, and so the com- community really got behind this project, realized the benefit to uh, to the area, and uh, and it's become a reality, and it's, it's marvelous.
0: So what resources will this center offer? What makes it stand out from other medical schools?
5: So um, it's really divided into two different, or really three different areas of uh, it's divided into wellness and and we know that uh, that students today uh, place a big value on on uh, physical fitness and so there's a, there's a really a complete gym there. There's a, a section that has cardio uh, it has ellipticals and and stair masters and all those kind of things so that's part of it and then there's a full uh, uh, area that that has weights, um, and and all of the uh, equipment that goes along with that, there also is a full gymnasium, and so along with meditation rooms and yoga rooms and spin spin classrooms, and so uh, really what a modern student would want at a major university, uh, we now have there here at, at our institution. So that, that's part one. Uh, then part two is really the educational component, which is really the, the primary purpose. And so uh, our, our uh, main teaching part of our uh, institution uh, was built back in the 70s. Uh, there, of course, back in the 70s, uh, uh, we, were, we were very conscious of, uh, of energy. And uh, so there's no ambient light. Uh, all of our classrooms are internal classrooms. Uh, which we now know uh, is not good for, for learning, uh, particularly when people spend long lengths of time in classrooms, uh, it's not good. And so then um, there have been no change for 40 years. And so this is a modern building with glass everywhere. There are two major um, classrooms and approximately 30 small classrooms for, uh, for the students. And uh, the the other thing that it really gives us is two other areas. Uh, simulation becomes very important uh, when you're teaching um, the medical professions. Uh, we want to make sure that that uh, our students are proficient uh, in diagnosing and treating diseases prior to going into a clinical setting. And so um, there are a, a whole floor that has nothing but simulation rooms in there. Wow. Everything from doing surgery to patients giving birth to uh, neonatal resuscitation, so all state-of-the-art, uh, and then also part of that, we do standardized patients, so as we instruct young physicians on how to interact with patients, uh, we actually hire people to come in and be, uh, be patients for us, their actual patients, and oh. they allow the students to do uh, most every exam that you can imagine on them uh, as part of their learning experience. And so we have a whole ward that's uh, dedicated to that. So that's the educational part of the, of the facility.
0: And there's also a Center for Emerging Viral Threats Research and Education. What can you tell us about that? Why is that a central focus of this center?
5: So uh, remember that, first of all, our institution was critical during the COVID pandemic. Uh, this building was being constructed during that period of time, and so a, B, a BSL-3 lab was a uh, part of this center. Uh, we felt like our ability to be able to study things like COVID uh, and other uh, pathogens was critical uh, to for the area, and so this is a fully functional BSL-3 lab uh, in this center uh, that allows us to be able to do that. Um, we have uh investigators that are coming in uh, to perform those those types of research. And and so we're very excited about that. And so that's really the third component of, uh, of this new center.
0: We are speaking with Dr. David Lewis, Dean of LSU Health Shreveport School of Medicine. We're discussing the grand opening of the new Medical Education and Wellness Center. So you recently had this big grand opening event. Tell us more about that. Who was there and what was the community reaction to finally seeing this place completed?
5: Yeah, I think everybody was in awe. So we, you know, and uh, the uh, the governor's office specifically and our local legislators were very key uh, in us being able to pull this off, along, quite honestly, with our hospital partner, Oshner. Who, uh, who donated uh, approximately $16.5 million to making this a reality. So um, um, representatives from all of these groups came together and we had a um, a grand o- a grand opening. The governor was here. Uh, most of the local legislative uh, body was here, along with uh, 400 individual donors. that gave anywhere from $100 up to $2.6 million, I think was announced as the largest Individual donor uh, Bubble Raspberry uh, uh, donated that actually the day that it opened. And so um, a lot of community support. Uh, most of the leaders were here and uh, they were in awe when they saw this building.
0: I know that you're hoping this facility will attract students from near and far, but this year we did see a slew of anti LGBTQ legislation debated at the State House. And we do know that that did result in a bit of a brain drain, people not necessarily wanting to live in a state that they didn't feel supported them. What would you say to students coming from out of state about how they'll be supported and what their opportunities will be here?
5: Yeah, so, uh, I mean, our student body is a very diverse student body, um, that, um, that it, and it's just diverse. Um, uh, and, um, and we make sure that uh, we welcome every, er, everyone. Um, I, I, I don't make the laws in the state. Um, I do have to live by them. Um, it, medicine is a very, very competitive field. We get 6,000 applications for 150 spots to put it into reality from all over the United States. And so um, we won't have any problems filling, uh, filling uh, our medical school with, with very good students.
0: And before we go, let's look 10, 20, even 30 years into the future. What's your long-term goal for this place?
5: So we currently have a class size of approximately 150. We would really like to increase that up to about 200 students per year. That'd be a total of 800 students at our school. Um, I, I think we all are aware that there's a huge um, physician shortage across the United States. Um Uh, The AMA has assured us that that's not going away anytime soon and uh, probably will get worse primarily because our population is aging. And so it's critical for us to be able to meet the demands that are out there. And uh, our state, as you mentioned, is in the South. And so being in the South, we actually have more of a health care deficiency than than much of the northern states or the West Coast. So.
0: Dr. David Lewis, Dean of LSU Health Shreveport School of Medicine, thanks so much for being here.
5: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Before we go today, we'll listen to this week's American Roots Shortcuts, where Nick Spitzer spends time with members of the Treme Brass Band to learn about their musical influences
6: growing up in New Orleans. I'm Nick Spitzer. This is American Roots for the holiday season. We're celebrating the NEA National Heritage Fellows, and I thought we'd honor a past group of fellows. New Orleans' Treme Brass Band received the award in 2006. They've since brought the tradition forward into the present. It's the Treme Brass Band Live at Artisound Studios in the Ninth Ward with Shake It and Break It on American Roots Live. the window, catch it, pull it, fall, shake it, and break it, hang it on the wall, throw out the window, catch it, pull it, fall, I want to stay, but I won't be back till fall, but I'm shaking and breaking, hanging it on the wall, let's go. Say a little bit about how you first got involved making Treme Brass Band
7: happen. I came out of a neighborhood that Six Ward is not called a Treme. And uh, <laughs> I come from a musical family. My father was a drummer. During my time coming up in a, a Sixth Ward, on a weekend when they have a big parade or something going on, I would always follow the uh, the brass band and follow me wide the to seats toward the back with the rhythm section I always wanted to be a drummer, you know. I, I didn't go to school for drumming, but I, I'm a self taught musician.
6: You went to school in the streets?
7: Yeah, yourself. Well, uh, I took in uh, practicing drums at the house on pots and pans at my house. Uh-huh. My mother had 12 kids. You couldn't afford to buy, you know, drums, so out I had to play on pots and pans and learn how to play drums. She needed <laughs> those pots and pans for 12 I'd kids. large. You know, yeah. Did she mind that you played on the pots and pans? Oh yeah, well you know, I, you know, I, I i always was a good kid. I never was no bad kid. So you know, I'd, I always respect my parents, and I always respect the people in my neighborhood. So mm. I, I never was a bad kid. So uh, by me doing that, I never have no problem trying to learn what I want yeah. to do
6: in life. Well, if the worst thing you did was play on the pots and pans, man, you're in good (laughs) shape. And
7: look at you now, all these years later, still got Tremé going. Yeah, Yeah. well, a couple of weeks ago, I made it uh, 80 years old. Is that right? Uh, Yeah. yeah, yeah, All right.
6: So what should we go on with here, gentlemen? are you Who calls the tunes? Do you call the tunes? Or well, we, we all it? do it most of the time. Yeah. Always it's a democracy it. sort
7: of I call sometimes, but most of the time I leave it, I leave it to the, the front row. That's right. You, yeah. got, you got to, again, take care yeah. make sure everybody's got yeah. it, got to yeah. say. I got to keep the time back. Y'all. Oh. <laughs>
0: <laughs> From WWNO in New Orleans and WRKF in Baton Rouge, you've been listening to Louisiana Considered. I'm Alana Schreiber. Thanks to our guests, Coastal Desk reporter Hallie Parker and Dean of the School of Medicine at LSU Health Shreveport, Dr. David Lewis. Our assistant producer is Aubrey Purcell, and our engineer is Garrett Pittman. You can listen to Louisiana Considered Monday through Friday at 12 and 7 p.m. It's available on Spotify, Google Play, and wherever you get your podcasts.
5: Major support
0: for Louisiana Considered provided by Rouse's Markets, a Louisiana shopping experience, with additional support from the Greater New Orleans Foundation.